Hi, I'm Rob Wolf, and welcome to New Thinking, a podcast produced by the Center for Court Innovation. Today I'm talking to Joan Petersilia, a law professor at Stanford University and one of the nation's foremost criminologists. She's the author of 11 books about crime and public policy, and her research on parole reform, prisoner reintegration, and sentencing policy has fueled changes in policies throughout the nation. A criminologist with a background in empirical research and social science, Dr. Peter Cilia is also faculty co-director for the Stanford Criminal Justice Center. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me. My pleasure. Uh, it seems to me that California is the perfect place to be for someone with a professional focus on parole reform and prisoner reintegration. You, in fact, have described California's prison system as a paradox of excess and deprivation. I gather you mean by that, and I'm now quoting your article that appeared last year in the University of Chicago's journal Crime and Justice, no other state spends more on its correction system and gets back less. I thought maybe you could um, elaborate a little bit on that idea for me. Well, California spends 49000 a year per inmate, and that's compared to the annual national average, which is about 24000 So we spend twice as much, and yet our recidivism rate is 70%, meaning that 70% of everybody who leaves a California prison will come back to a prison uh, within three years. And that compares to a national average of about 40%. So we spend more and we actually get less in terms of reduced recidivism and reduced crime. And that was what I meant by kind of a paradox. You would think if you're spending the most, you would in fact be doing the best, but we're spending the most and doing the worst. Well, maybe you can bring me up to date on what has happened in California regarding this uh, recent federal court ruling that requires the state to bring the prison population down from about 158,000 to 115,000. And I understand that would still leave the state's prisons at about 137% of their design capacity. You're referring to uh, two court cases that we have had uh, in litigation for over 15 years in California that finally reached kind of the end point in terms of the judges saying enough is enough. They had asked the Department of Corrections to basically give better medical care and dental care. So that's what the two cases uh, revolve around. And the courts have said that the overcrowding in California prisons is such that there's no way an inmate can get adequate medical care or dental care. So the case has evolved but now become a test of overcrowding. And so the courts have ruled that in order to be able to deliver adequate medical care, the prison system must in fact become uncrowded. And in the judge's opinion, that means reducing from about 170,000, which is what we have today, to about 135,000 or so within the next two years. You have recognized in your research and your writing and advocacy that prisoners suffer disproportionately from health problems, mental illness, addiction, and clearly would benefit and need better medical care. But I imagine you'd feel that just releasing them without any kind of uh, treatment, services, doesn't really address the underlying issue or the deeper issue of reintegration. Well, prisoners, as you've said, are an incredibly sick population. They are physically 
physically about 10 years older on average. If you take a 50-year-old, their health will look like a 60-year-old. So what's happened to the U.S. prison population as sentences have gotten longer and as the population has aged and as medical costs, all medical costs, not only for prisoners but uh, for people outside of prison, have escalated over the last decade, this has just kind of become a perfect storm. We actually spend in California $14,000 per inmate for medical care. In the outside, free citizens, the average is about 4000 It's interesting because, again, that's another example, I guess, of your uh, the paradox of excess and deprivation. I mean, to spend so much more on uh, prisoner health care and yet get so little, really. In your research and your work, you know, you focused a lot on prisoner reintegration. What's at stake here? Why is it important to focus on this issue? And is it being lost now in the budget crunches that so many states, including California, are facing and issues like overcrowding? Well, through that article that you mentioned, and I love the words, excess leading to kind of less public safety. Because another example of this is in the parole system, which you're now addressing. California is the only state that everybody who leaves prison goes on formal parole supervision for one to three years, usually an average of about two and a half. Other states, again, send maybe 30 to 40% of prisoners to parole. So when people get out, they in parole in most states selects the most dangerous, puts them on parole supervision, drug tests them, watches them closely, and then violates them if they commit a new crime or a serious uh, violation of parole. California has, again, incredible excess. Everybody, and that means 120,000 people who leave prison in California each year, goes on parole supervision, which means that nobody really gets watched very closely. So again, we have excess of kind of what you would imagine, kind of legal control, but very little public safety because it really means, you know, one size fits all ends up meaning one size fits no one. Here we saw a classic example of Philip Garrido, the sex offender who, you know, abducted J.C. Lee Dugard and kept her as a, I guess you would have to call a sex slave in his backyard, and he fathered two of her children. And people have to ask the question, how is it that he was on parole for 10 years and nobody knew he was doing this kind of thing? And when you know the parole system, it, it's, it didn't, wasn't surprising to me at all because there's 120,000 people in California that parole agents are trying to watch. And we only have about 5,000 parole agents. So they're just simply spread too thin. Well, I actually had read something that uh, a few years ago, I think it was in 2005, California was experimenting, I thought, with putting fewer people on parole. Well, we are actually, right now, as we speak, our legislature is voting uh, this week on a major, major, I mean, it's the most important thing, I think, that's happened to California Corrections in at least 20 years. Our legislature is now voting on a parole reform package, which will do three things. It will place only high-risk people and moderate-risk people on active parole supervision. Then it will shorten the length of time people are on parole. So people who are doing well on parole can actually discharge their parole at one year instead of three years. And then probably most importantly is the third aspect, is that if you violate parole in California and your violation is only a technical violation, meaning you've tested 
positive for drugs, let's say, or missed an appointment, you no longer will be uh, sent to prison. You'll only serve time in local jail. That will cut our prison population significantly. Are you concerned that in cutting the number of prisoners on parole, the result will not necessarily be higher quality supervision for those who are still on parole, but it will just be the same kind of supervision that's already being delivered. Well, I think the next major issue that criminologists and those interested in crime control have to face is that what happens when prisoners are released back to communities where the services that are necessary for their success are in fact being cut. And so many of us who've studied reentry know that it wasn't just about getting them off parole. That really was not the intent. The intent was to get them simply off surveillance and getting them into some services plus surveillance. We know that what works is not simply sending somebody to treatment alone. Uh, that hasn't worked. And it also doesn't work if you simply you know, put them on uh, electronic monitoring without services. So a lot of the research shows that you must combine treatment with kind of uh, deterrence or surveillance. Unfortunately, what is now happening is in most states, because of the pressure to reduce people from prison, we are going to see a lot of releases. We're going to see releases from prison, we're going to see releases from parole, and we're going to see technical violators not being sent back to prison. Now, I'm in favor of doing that if the, if the offender is low risk, but I was never in favor of it to simply let them out without anything. And that doesn't do anybody any good and threatens public safety. So the plan was always to provide services. So what we're getting is kind of half of the plan, but a key ingredient missed. You've participated in discussions here at the Center for Court Innovation that explore the topic of failure and what we can learn from failed initiatives. With that in mind, I was wondering if you could tell me what reentry reforms have you tested in California that uh, you think work or perhaps don't work but tell us important lessons? Well, I've, I've become involved in a small project, but it's touted across California as being one of the most successful reentry projects at a local level. And I've learned the lessons about what it takes to make reentry successful. And it's more than simply programs. You know, an offender is more than the sum of his programs. And we used to think if we just got him into the right program, whether it be a drug treatment facility or a unemployment or a work training, that that would be enough. It clearly isn't enough. Even once you get those three things, and I think I think the three keys of reentry are addiction under control, stability in housing, and a job. If you get all those things, three things going, it still kind of isn't enough, we've learned. And you've really got to have kind of that community support. Um, and with law enforcement, with children, with families, they're all part of kind of a, this network or constellation of supports for offenders who eventually go straight and stay straight. We have some success of what it, what it means to get somebody to go straight in the short run. Um, we actually have pretty good success at getting somebody to go straight for 12 months to 24 months, even 36 months. The real challenge is get, getting somebody to refrain from crime for the rest of their lives. And what we've learned about that is that it eventually is about family.
families and children and parents and a broader community. And when it really works, all that kind of comes together. So, so we know a lot about what it takes. The problem is it's, it's not easy and it's not inexpensive. And we need to acknowledge that community corrections, if done right, is actually probably as expensive as prison in the short run. But what we're looking for is those lifetime cost benefits. I find it fascinating that California once had what was considered the nation's premier correction system. I guess that was from about the 40s to the 60s. So I'd like to ask you, in your view, what happened? What can we learn from where California is today? Uh, Do you think California will ever get back to that? Well, California, as you said, used to be a national model. And in fact, many of the programs that are being used today, not only in California and the United States, but internationally, in fact, came from ideas developed in California corrections in the period between the 50s all up through the end of the 70s. So there was a 25-year period where California was really a model system of how to treat juveniles in particular, as well as adults, and how to bring community into sanctioning, if you will. And so then you have to ask, well, how did it go from this model to now, I would think, what everybody would recognize is, is probably one of the most dysfunctional systems we have. And I think nobody could have foreseen how it, we just chipped away at it at every level. We chipped away at it in terms of giving control over to a huge prisoner guard union um, so that, in fact, their money became very money still talked. They uh, were able to give large amounts of money to legislators running for office. Those legislators turned around, ran on tough on crime platforms, passed things like three strikes, um, lengthened sentences, sent more people to prison, and as a result, funding for programs had to be reduced. So we were simply building, 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 and cutting programs. And so over the years, what we got was, in fact, overcrowded, dangerous. 50% of our prisoners never participate in any program at all for their entire stay in a California prison. Ultimately, I guess we could see it as a blessing, the kind of overcrowding, in a way, because it encourages a search for alternatives, and hopefully, I guess we would hope, effective alternatives that guarantee or promote the public safety and the successful reintegration of ex-inmates into into communities. Well, I think I see the current time as, as a crisis, for sure. But in every crisis, there's the potential for opportunity. And I would like to think that what this does do for us is it makes us rethink and realign who should be in prison. And I think most people in the public want dangerous, violent people in prison, and they're willing to pay for it. And they kind of really are also, the public opinion polls, willing to rethink what we do with nonviolent, particularly drug offenders. So I think that we will be having those debates, and the poor economy kind of got those debates to the forefront. But the real question is, what do we do with a third of the prison population that are there primarily for drug use, drug addiction, drug sale? We simply can't let those people go without any treatment or any programs. Um, Then we will have simply had kind of a short-term gain and a 
long-term blip in the crime rate, which will happen two, three, four, five years out. I think we've got to really think hard about, if not prison, what? And that, to me, is the key question that we now need to address. Well, it's been fascinating talking with you, and I really appreciate, again, your taking the time. I've been talking with Joan Petersilia, a law professor at Stanford University, uh, the author of 11 books, and an expert in the area of parole reform, prisoner reintegration, and sentencing policy. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. I'm Rob Wolf, Director of Communications at the Center for Court Innovation. To learn more about the Center for Court Innovation, you can visit our website at www.courtinnovation.org.